You're listening to the free edition of Sweden in Focus from The Local. If you would like to listen to a full-length version of the podcast, as well as an additional midweek episode, please check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade to Membership Plus. Here's this week's free edition. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Sweden in Focus, the locals' weekly peek at what's happening in this cold northern kingdom we call home. We are recording this on Thursday the 20th of October. In today's episode, we're going to continue our exploration of the new government, which was officially unveiled on Tuesday. We'll look at who the new ministers are and the main talking points in the first week of Ulf Kristersson's reign as prime minister. We'll also take a closer look at the government's plans for work permits with the help of a policy expert. And similarly, we'll speak to a human rights law expert to examine whether the new coalition's contract constitutes a threat to fundamental rights. I'm Paul Mani, and I'm joined here in the studio in Stockholm by James Savage and in Malmö by Richard Orange and Becky Waterton. How are you all? Very well. Hello. Very good. Hello. Yeah, good, thanks. We are joined in the studio in Malmö by Richard's dog again. So she's becoming a regular guest on this podcast. Yes, a regular <laughs> regular mascot. Yes, if you hear any whining, that's her. Have you got anything you want to get off your chest before we before we get into the meat of the episode? I've sold my apartment. We've signed the congratulations. contract. Congratulations. Well yes. All right then, let's let's get going and congratulations Becky. It's been a busy old week. The new parliament met on Monday to vote on whether to appoint the moderate parties of Christian as Sweden's new prime minister and everyone voted exactly along party lines meaning that 176 MPs voted in favor and 173 against. There was some drama at the end when a spectator shouted a reminder to the new prime minister that he had once promised a holocaust survivor never to collaborate with the Sweden Democrats but the protester was swiftly removed from the chamber and the right bloc was able to continue with its standing ovation for Christian. Then on Tuesday Christian gave a speech to Parliament in which he laid out his plans for the next few years. Most of what he said was fully in line with the TIDA agreement we discussed in last week's podcast and then came the moment everyone was waiting for when he presented his new cabinet and we'll dig into some of the new ministers in just a moment but first let's take a look at some of the numbers To start with, how many ministers are there in the new government? There are 24 ministers, if you include the prime minister. So 23 non-prime ministerial ministers. Okay, and how are they split between the three parties? Um, The moderates got 12 ministers, the Christian Democrats 6 and the Liberals 5. And if you were to award ministries on the proportion to seats, it would have been 15-4-3. and So the smaller parties got a bit of reward for not having the big jobs. Okay, interesting. And who's uh, who's the oldest minister and who's the youngest minister? So the oldest is the Prime Minister himself, Ulf Kristersson. He is 58 years old. And the youngest is Romina Pomoktari, who is 26 and is not only the youngest minister in this government, she is the youngest Swedish minister ever. And she's minister for? 
she is Minister for Environment and Climate. Great. And how many men and how many women are there in the government? So if you don't include the Prime Minister, then there are 11 women and 12 men. So it's just under half, which is about the same as the outgoing government. Obviously, if you include the Prime Minister, it's 13 men and 11 women. So that's slightly, again, slightly less than half. Right. Good stuff. And who has got the heavyweight portfolios like finance, justice, foreign affairs, defence? The moderates have got basically all of them. So Elizabeth Swanson gets finance, so that's no surprise there. Gunnar Stromer, the former party secretary, gets justice. Tobias Bilstrom, the former group leader in parliament, gets foreign affairs. And Paul Jonsson, who's the former head of parliament's defence committee, gets defence. So all of the big jobs go to the moderates. Okay, good. Let's look at those four individually, because those are obviously four really big roles. James, start with you. Um, Tobias Bilstrom, who's he? So Tobias Bilstrom, the new foreign minister, he is a political veteran now. He was migration minister uh, during the Reinfeldt era, so between 2006-2014. And he was deputy speaker between 2014-2017. He was an early tough talker on immigration. He was the first person in the moderate party to broach this idea that you should have a limit to the volume of immigrants coming to Sweden, particularly asylum immigrants. On the other hand, he was also the the minister that introduced Sweden's liberal laws on labour migration. So you can't really paint him as a liberal as a liberal or a conservative of migration issues. It's, it's been a bit mixed. But obviously migration is not, not his role now. It's, it's, it's foreign policy. And he has said he wants to take foreign policy back to more looking at the EU, the Baltic um, and the Nordics. So, you know, which is pulling back from this sort of um, social democrat idea of, you know, we want to be a you know world citizen. It's very much focusing on the air in Sweden's immediate vicinity. That's not much of a surprise. There's an awful lot going on in Sweden's, um, in Sweden's vicinity. Um, background, other um, tidbit, he has an MA in history from Cambridge and a Magister, which is like an MA in, also in history from uh, Lund. So he has a double master's in history. Focus on British colonialism. Hmm. Okay. And the new finance minister, Elizabeth Svantesson, what do we know about her? She was the moderates financial spokesperson before becoming the finance minister. When the moderates kind of floated the idea of her cost nuts with high cost protection for energy, hmm. it was Elizabeth Svantesson talking about the, the kind of finance, financial implications of it, how much it would cost and all that kind of thing. So I'd say she's been presented as this package alongside Ulf Christensen that it's kind of been understood that she would be the finance minister. So that's not really come as a surprise. She's got a doctorate in national economy, so like national economics at Örebro University. Okay, so let's move on to um, the new justice minister, Gunnar Strömer. Gunnar Strömer is, I'd say, alongside um, Ulf Christensen and Elizabeth Svansson, he's one of the leading people who've transformed the party since Ulf Christensen took over five years ago. So on election night, he was the one talking to the journalists at the party's vigil in the coalition negotiations. He's been the one updating people on what's going on. He's a very kind of jolly, personable, charming kind of guy. But he's got a really fascinating background because he was one of the founders of Centrum for Retvisa, which pretty much pioneered public interest law activist law in Sweden and has done a lot of, you know, fought some really high profile cases like against this FRA law, sort of internet snooping law they tried to bring Mm. in, in the kind of days of the Pirate Bay when it was a really high profile issue. They took that to the European court. It's kind of strange to see this kind of activist law firm that's been protecting people's civil rights and legal rights. And now he's in charge as justice minister of driving through what a lot of lawyers say is is infringing on on, on legal rights and is sort of slightly threatening the, the rule of 
of law. And he himself says he's, ha- he's had a sort of conversion on some topics, like, for example, listening into the phone calls of criminals with fewer suspicions, because he's saying, you know, that the situation with crime in Sweden is so severe that the kind of the balance has changed, you know, so, so there's always a balance. But w- because we've had so many shootings, the balance has now shifted and now he backs it, whereas he used to campaign against it. I think we should also mention that he was in this Calafacta party donation yeah, scandal. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. In this investigative documentary about parties finding ways of getting around campaign finance laws, he, he was the guy who was recorded saying, well, you could give money to a foundation or in, advising this, uh, billion, this millionaire on how to get around campaign financing laws. Okay, um, thanks for that. Yeah. So now um, let's look at the new defence minister, Paul Jonsson. Who's he? So he has a long history in defence policy. Uh, He has been chairman of the Defence Committee in Parliament since 2019. He has a doctorate in war studies and he did military service in amphibious special operations. So on the face of it, a very well qualified person to be um, defence minister at a time where Sweden is looking at increasing the defence budget and obviously a time with with huge security tensions in Sweden's vicinity. So he's going to have a lot to do. But seems to to have a very uh, a very good background to get started with it. Okay, good. And I guess of particular interest to to us, I mean, who are the ministers in charge of immigration and integration? So one interesting thing to note here before I get into this is that in the previous government there was one minister in charge of both of these. Anders Ugeman was uh, the Social Democrat immigration and migration minister. But in Ulf Kristersson's government he's chosen to split these up. So we've got one minister in charge of immigration, that's Maria Malmö-Stenegård from the Moderates. And then we've got one minister in charge of integration and employment. So that's Johan Persson from the Liberals, the leader of the Liberal Party. So this is clearly kind of a big enough post that they've put the leader of one of the parties on it. OK, interesting. Um, so let's look at those in turn then. So um, Maria Malmö-Stenegård, who, who is she? She is a lawyer, I think, uh, which is one qualification for the job. But I think perhaps her chief qualification is that she's from Skorna, which is where all of the Sweden Democrats are from. And that she's got the right accent to talk with the Sweden Democrats, who basically should be called the Skorna Democrats. She speaks because, their language. Because she is, because they are basically based in Skorna, I mean, where we are. if we're going to be technical here, Jimmy Jorkin's actually from Blekinge. He is. He is. He's the, he's the exception, really. But... Um, but she has been the migration spokesman during the election campaign and she has been very good at putting forward quite a tough rhetoric on migration and in a way she, she's perfect for the role and she's the person that I think a lot of people had um, predicted would have the role. I think there was a toss-up whether it would be her or Tobias Bilstrom who was migration minister under the Reinfeldt government as, as James said. It'd be really interesting how she handles the role because when the Liberal Party in Denmark were in a similar position, their migration minister Inga Storbeg took on not just the policies of the far-right parties that backed them, but the the rhetoric and the populist way of putting it forward. You know, she had a cake celebrating all of the hundred mm. ways she had toughened migration. She, and she had policies such as taking jewellery away from refugees, which were designed to, to get in the news and generate controversy, and now has has started her own party called the, the Denmark Democrats, which is a kind of direct rip-off of the Sweden Democrats. So it'd be interesting to see how she handles the role, because I think it is quite difficult to be a moderate driving through a Sweden Democrat migration policy. I think also I was looking into Maria Malmö-Stenegård and she has previously called for a pause on accepting quota refugees. But I mean, things that will 
uh, maybe be interesting for our readers is that she has campaigned or she, she's kind of spoken out that it should be easier for foreign doctoral students to stay in Sweden. And um, she criticised the Social Democrat government previously for not doing enough to combat talent deportation. So it looks like maybe she's got a positive view of work permit migration or labour migration. Like that kind of says to me there's some issues there that maybe will be interesting for people that read the local. So the, the minister in charge of integration and employment is the Liberal Party leader, Johan Persson. What can you tell us about him? Well, we've spoken about Johan Persson quite a lot in this podcast, so I'll keep it brief. He's... As you say, the Liberal Party leader since relatively recently, he's a lawyer by training. He's been in uh, the Riksdag since 1994, so a real veteran in that sense. But he wasn't a minister in the previous uh, alliance governments. But I think it's interesting that they're, that they're putting integration and labour together. Obviously, you know, the, the mantra is that the way to integration is through is through employment, getting people into the workforce. And there's concern that some asylum immigrants don't get into the workforce in, in sufficient numbers. And there's high unemployment in that group, which which is true. He's also promising to crack down on low-skilled labour migration and is a big proponent of language tests. Now, a lot of this isn't really within his remit. Um, the language test, possibly, up to a point. But, you know, this by separating integration and immigration, you kind of blur the waters a bit on who's, on who's responsible here. Aside from uh, Yuan Passion, all the ministers we've mentioned so far are moderates. What uh, portfolios did the Christian Democrats and Liberals get? So we should maybe start with the leader of the Christian Democrats, Ebba Bush, who is, first off, she's deputy prime minister, which kind of makes sense because she's the leader of the second biggest party in the government. And she is also the energy and business minister. She'll be leading the business ministry, which has now been combined with the climate ministry. So it's the ministry for business and climate. And then alongside her, the other Christian Democrats we've got are Peter Kulgren, who is going to be the rural affairs minister, uh, Andreas Karlsson, infrastructure and housing minister, Jakob Forsmed as minister of social affairs, Akko Ankeberi as health minister and Eric Slotner as minister for public administration. And then on the liberal side, we've got, uh, like I said, education minister has gone to the liberals. That's Mats Persson. And we've got equality minister, Paulina Branberry, schools minister, Lotte Edholm, who is a little bit controversial, which we'll go into later. And climate minister, as we've mentioned, Romina Pumaktori, who is the, the 26 year old youngest ever minister in Sweden. Okay, that's interesting. So the Liberals are in charge of education with both the um, education and schools ministers and the Christian Democrats have the sort of healthcare ministers uh, in various guises. And, you know, we've we've mentioned before that the Christian Democrats want to reform and nationalise the healthcare system. So that's, that's an area they're very interested in. If we can stick with them for a moment then. Ebba Bush is the new energy minister and deputy prime minister. I think it's a real surprise that she didn't get health. I mean, throughout the election campaign and over the last five years, health has been her big big campaigning issue. And and it's a similar situation with, with the Liberals. You would have expected Johan Persson to get education, but they've taken other ministries and put their junior ministers in those positions. And I and, and I wonder what why that why why that is. Well I think Ebba Bush is probably more accurately the nuclear power minister. Perhaps if yeah. we look at what mm. the yeah. what their block were saying in the lead up to the election, um, I think she's probably going to be the one kind of making sure that nuclear power happens and these nuclear power stations that have been promised are actually going to appear. Absolutely. It's really interesting that they have abolished the environment ministry or rather they have merged it with the business ministry and the Minister for Climate and Environment, uh, Romina Pormaktari, is sitting there in the same ministry as Ebba Bush and her closest associate 
her Staatssekretär, her state secretary, has a PhD in nuclear reactors. So, you know, you've got very a very clear focus there, both from the Liberals and the Christian Democrats in the business ministry, that this is all about nuclear power. And as soon as Eva Bush was interviewed, she was asked whether the, the climate issues and the environment had been given too much weight in, in Swedish policy over the last mandate period. And she said, yes, it's been given too much weight. It's an indication of, of, of the approach they're going to take. It means that Romina Pomaktari, the climate minister, is not going to have a whole department to back up her policies. So we'll have to see if, if this is a move, you know, green transition, you want green industry in Norland. Is it, is it a smart move to kind of make sure that business and climate are more linked? Or is it just a way to kind of say, oh, no, we still have a climate minister, but then you put your most junior minister in parliament who's only just been elected to parliament? I think that's right. And I, th- I think, you know, the, the experience issue, obviously, she's she's an extremely talented young politician. Mm. Um, and if you've seen her in any, in any debates, she's, you know, she's she's pretty switched on. But it's not like environment and climate have been her single big issues. It's been, you know, she's talked about it, she's debated it, but it's not it's not been her, her single big issues. And, you know, without the experience of knowing how to manoeuvre within the government offices, without knowing how, you know, exactly how all the wheels, how all the cogs turn, you know, she's going to find it quite hard to push climate and um, environment issues up the agenda. And like you say, particularly without having a ministry of her own. I do wonder about her because, you know, she she got a lot of criticism because the day before she was appointed, she had on her Twitter by it said, you know, know, I'm fighting against racists, the patriarchy and social democrats. And then she took that away (laughs) before she got appointed. So she's been, she's been, she's got quite, she's had an enormous amount of stick actually since she got um, elected, which is probably a bit unfair because it's it's a great thing to have young people in, in politics, I think. How big a surprise is it that they got rid of the environment ministry? I think now looking back on it in hindsight, it's not that surprising. Mm-hmm. Um, I think people, you know, people were like, "Oh, crikey, yes, they have." But, but at the same time, there was so there was an element of surprise. But but it, it's sort of quite consistent with how they've spoken about climate and environment issues during the election campaign, particularly this focus on nuclear power. Saying, "Look, if we are going to make Sweden or you know give Sweden enough fossil-free electricity, the only sustainable way to do that without you know having intermittent power is through building out." our nuclear power um, infrastructure and you know that's going to help us with the electrification of the road network and all of that so it's very consistent with what they've been saying we've got one more minister we want to talk about before uh, we move on to to work permits lotta edholm the new schools minister she has been in hot water this week why well because she is I think, or certainly until until very recently, until now, was the chairman of a free school company called uh, Telus. And she was also a shareholder in this company. Now, obviously, free schools are massively controversial, and she will now be in charge of legislating on free schools. And she's promised now to sell her 100,000 krona of shares. I think she probably just has sold them. But this carousel between the free school companies and the government has been a, an, an issue of controversy before. There was um, the, the head of the Free School Association of Sweden is a former moderate politician. So, you know, these cosy relationships between these, these companies that obviously owe their entire existence and all their revenue to government decisions. And, you know, the fact that you've got government ministers coming in and out of these schools is is a matter of, of great controversy. So, yeah, she's got a lot of criticism for that, but it's um it's nothing secret. You know, the it was known when she was appointed and um, this government is very much in favour of free schools and of, you know, only minor 
tweaks to how they how they operate. So in terms of the government's spoken policy, I don't think that that is massively controversial, but obviously a lot of people don't like it. Sweden in Focus is free to listen to, but it is made possible by readers becoming members of the local Sweden. And we've seen a lot of new members join us recently. So thank you. Uh, If you're not yet a member, you can support us by heading to thelocal.se and subscribing with the reduced rate for podcast listeners at thelocal.se forward slash podcast offer. One of the points in the new coalition agreement that's going to affect a lot of listeners is a plan to introduce a salary threshold equivalent to the median national salary for work permit applicants. And they haven't settled on an exact figure yet, but it's going to be around 33,000 kroner. Richard, you spoke to Tuva Hovamir, a policy expert at the pro-labour immigration Fores think tank, to get her analysis of the so-called TIDA agreement. What did she tell you? Well, she said it was, in a way, too narrow to see this as a labour migration issue. She saw it as more of a growth issue or as an economic issue. And she said that bringing in this threshold would have an enormous impact on Swedish competitiveness. OK, great. So let's listen to what um, some of what she had to say, and then we'll, we'll come back to discuss this further. In Sweden, labour market and businesses are in desperate need of both domestic and foreign workforce to grow and still maintain a, a good economy. So this is ultimately a question about Sweden's growth, businesses and the ability for the country to be a competitive in a globalised world. OK, so that was uh, Tova Hovamir and we'll hear more from her soon. What she says there is is one side of the coin and obviously the new government would disagree. They said that there are plenty of people living in Sweden who can fill those roles. Yeah, I put that to her and she countered it by saying a little unconvincingly, in my opinion, that, that that under the current rules in Sweden, you can only hire for overseas if you've advertised a job for 10 days. So she said, well, if those jobs could be filled by people in, you know, the, the suburbs of Stockholm, they already would be. And to be honest, I think that if you're looking at, say, the hotel industry, I'm not sure I agree, because I think that they would rather have a kind of bright young university graduate from Poland than somebody... I think if you forced the hotel industry and restaurant industry to work a bit harder, they could provide provide more jobs to people in the suburbs. I, I, don't, mm. I don't, personally, I don't agree with her. But that was her argument. She said, you know, that they're already advertised uh, in Sweden. And that's an EU law, isn't it, that you have to advertise any job. If you're hiring from outside the EU, you have to advertise a job in the country that you're advertising in and in the rest of the EU for 10 days before you can hire Is someone it? from so it's not EU. even Yeah, exactly. I believe so, yeah. And you have to advertise on that really weird, crappy EU site, Eures, yeah. no. um, that nobody ever uses. But as far that's, as I can that's tell. linked to Arbitz for Middlingen. So as long as you advertise on Arbitz yeah. for Middlingen, it's also advertised it, on Eures. It automatically comes up in, in Eures, yeah. And um, and we also, we also spoke about how um, how this is going to affect a lot of the locals' readers who are computer programmers, IT consultants, and the sort of people that businesses really need. And not just by because, because they don't cross the threshold, but just because the whole rhetoric that this government has about foreigners living in Sweden and foreign labour is so negative. And and if you look at the locals' website, we've already had readers advising each other, other other IT specialists, so, you know, go to Germany, Germany's much better, you can plan your life in Germany, you know you can settle in Sweden, you have no idea how long you can stay, and um, you, you, you may, may have to move in, in, in five or ten years. So this is definitely going to have an impact. And she said that she could really understand why people would feel that way and warn that it really could have 
unexpected impacts on, on growth in Sweden. Okay, let's listen to, to more then of what Tova Hovamir had to say. If you send the signals that you are not allowed to come here and work, and I mean, we have to remember that labor migrants that come to Sweden work, pay taxes, and contribute to the welfare state as much as any other citizen in this country. Mm. So these are people that are actually coming here and just contributing to the country. It's a win-win-win situation for the country, for the labor migrant itself, and for the businesses in Sweden. Mm. So I understand that they are angry. I would be too if I came to a country and contributed with my skill and workforce and then being told that I should leave because migrants in general are bad for Sweden. I, I understand their anger. I would be angry too. That was Tove Hovamir and she said a lot more interesting stuff in Richard's interview with her and we'll include a link to that in the show notes. Uh, so go read if you're if you're interested. Can I bring you in here, Becky? You wrote an article this week looking at the implications of the agreement for foreigners. How is it going to affect current work permit holders? So this is a really difficult question to answer. As a general rule, from the proposal of a law until when it gets passed, the process takes two years. Um, but some there's already kind of some work permit stuff in the pipeline. There's there's a there's a proposal about labour market testing, which may or may not be scrapped. There's kind of they very recently proposed work permit. They just made a change to work permit legislation in June this year. So it's possible they could kind of do it a bit quicker. And one of the scary things for a lot of people about work permit legislation is that it usually applies retroactively. So let's say, I mean, a lot of people were affected by this when the new laws came into force in June, is that they already had an application that was completely completely as it should be under the, under the rules that were in place when they applied. And then June the 1st came around and they got emails from the migration agency saying that you haven't supplied this this signed contract that you have to you have to supply to us. Where is it? You can't have your work permit until you supply it. And then I think this has kind of made a lot of people wonder, well, if they're going to introduce this salary limit of 33,200 and like it would cut a lot of people out of the work market. It would, a lot of Swedes don't have that salary, especially young people. No. Like it, it's it's worrying because I think a lot of people on work permits right now probably don't have a salary that high. And there's a lot of people sitting there thinking, well, my my jobs, I'm going to maybe have, you know, 29,000 kroner a month. Am I going to have to suddenly go back to my employer and ask for a, for a salary raise so I can I can live here? Like, it's really hard to tell when this is going to come into effect, who it's going to affect, if it's going to apply retroactively. Let's say you have a work permit that runs out in two years. You're safe on that, I would say. That would be my my reading of the situation. But the issue would be when you renew that work permit, what are the rules going to be like then? That's kind of the big question here. Mm. Are new are work permit rules going to apply retroactively to people that have already applied but haven't heard back yet? And what's going to happen when you renew your work permit? Are you suddenly going to have to ask your employer for a, for a pay rise so you can stay in the country? Uh, there's a lot that isn't known, that, that is not clear from the agreement. And and on the 33,000, I mean, Tove Hovemir said she was appalled that a Liberal Party politician had gone out saying, you know, well, this prevents slave labour coming to Sweden. She's going, 33,000, that's half of people in Sweden. By yeah. definition, it's the median. You know, mm. half of people in yeah. Sweden do not earn that amount. Well, absolutely. And, and you know, the, particularly particularly younger people. So at the beginning of your career, you almost by definition earn less than you will later on during your career. And so, you know, the median salary particularly makes it harder for younger people, even very well qualified younger people to move to Sweden. And very well qualified younger people are exactly the sorts of people that some of these innovative Swedish companies 
actually need to employ. So it 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 is going to be really tough. But you know, as as Torve Hovmes says, there are also many other sectors in Sweden that aren't high that don't need high skill labor but still need or don't need traditionally high skill labor don't need people with you know masters degrees or or even bachelors degrees they but they need people with with other kinds of skills that also don't necessarily attract those kinds of salaries and what's this going to mean for those businesses but they have in the in the TIDA agreement they have made some allowances for making it easier for doctoral researchers to stay in Sweden they they have they have at least made made, made some allowance Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is that. Since Ulf Christensen presented the new agreement last Friday, some legal experts have expressed concern about how much it focuses on crime and immigration and what it will mean for civil rights and the rule of law in Sweden. Richard uh, spoke this week to John Stauffer, who's the legal director for the human rights organisation Civil Rights Defenders. He too, like Tova Hovamir, had a lot to say and we're not going to be able to cover all of it here, but we will link to the article where we go into it in more detail. Let's listen now to some of what he had to say. I mean, as as a human rights organization, we are we are very concerned about about this agreement uh, that is presented by the government and and the Sweden Democrats. It it clearly lacks a rights based approach. It's not aimed at strengthening protection uh, of of our human rights. It's not meant to uh, strengthen the rule of law. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not men- meant to strengthen democracy either. Um, and, and actually, on the contrary, the agreement includes measures that are in clear conflict with, with human rights norms that Sweden are bound by. Uh, by it undermines the rule of law, uh, and in the end, it undermines democracy. And how hopeful are you that, that from keeping, you know, if not all, but so, at least some, of, of these laws from ever being imposed in practice? How hopeful do you think that possibility is that this will not be possible to drive through and in the end the changes will be less drastic than they appear. Looking at the uh, agreement and also listening to what the parties are advocating for, I'm still very concerned that ways will be found to make this possible, even by changing constitution uh, if necessary. Even if you know this package of measures policy is not becoming concrete proposals or, or concrete policy and legislation, it still sends a clear signal. Uh, mm-hmm. You know this this type of an agreement. It signals, you know, what kind of society the government sees as a vision and what they strive for. And it also signals to different groups in society, uh, you know, how they're viewed. 
upon uh, mm-hmm. by by uh, decision makers, the, mm-hmm. the government, and I think that in itself is is hugely problematic. That was uh, John Stauffer from Civil Rights Defenders. Can you tell us a bit more, Richard, about why you why you wanted to talk to him? I think it's because they are pretty much the most prominent group in Sweden using the law to defend the rights of anyone, really, but pr- primarily asylum seekers. They've done a lot of court cases defending the Roma and and also the rights of people who are on trial. So th- so they combat things like the, the attempt to, to make evidence more admissible and things like that. Along with um, Centre for Rep Visa, the public interest law firm, you know, Stromer founded, they're, they're probably Sweden's, they are Sweden's leading kind of public interest law group. And they also work internationally. So they've got a much broader perspective. They're, they're also active across the world and in, in, in Poland and Hungary and places. And one of the reasons I want to get in touch with them is because they're going to be very, very busy over the next four years mm. going through all of the provisions and proposals that the, this government wants to do. It's a very far-reaching reform programme that they've got, which is also a very, some would argue, very illiberal one that can be challenged on all sorts of... Or it has the potential to the be potential very illiberal. The potential to be yeah. very liberal and... Um, and also, there's quite a large potential to to block some of the provisions, as as happened if you look in the UK when they had that flight that was going to take asylum seekers to Rwanda. It got stopped on the runway by lawyers, by a group such as this. So, so they they're going to be really busy, and it'd be really interesting to see how that plays out over the the next four years. And, and it was quite interesting how how much respect he he had for Gunnar Stromer, and and they saw, so they know each other. These people know each other very well, and there's just going to be a kind of legal battle going on over the next four years uh, over which proposals are admissible and which aren't. One of the things he raised as a point of particular concern was the section on bristande vandal, which can be translated as something like deficient moral conduct. Let's uh, listen to a little bit of what he had to say there. This is something that we're very worried about because it can, for unclarities mm-hmm. um, uh, on how to apply this law and, and what's really you know, it's what's really um, expected of people and when you can be possibly then extradited. Mm-hmm. When are you not Swedish enough, maybe, to, to be here? They want to have it uh, a bit unclear. Uh, that's the whole purpose of it. There's been a lot of criticism for some of the things that they have suggested it might be used for. So, for instance, prostitution, um, which in Swedish law, in Swedish law, a prostitute is considered to be a victim. Uh, so you prosecute people who buy sex, but you help people who are prostitutes. At least that's the theory. And people who um, who are drug users. So people are looking at, you know, or opponents of this proposal are looking at those two categories in particular and saying, well, but, but drug users and prostitutes are people you should be helping, not punishing. And this is going to make helping them so much more difficult. Also, the idea of being in a gang. Well, if you're convicted of a if you're convicted of a crime in the in a context of, of of gang criminality, well, that's straightforward. You're convicted of a convicted of a crime. You can be deported. You can be deported now if it's a sufficiently serious crime. But how do you define whether somebody is in a gang if they haven't actually committed a particular crime? These gangs, you know, as we said before, you don't you don't have a um, you don't have a, a you know a maintained register on a on a database with people's with the name names and personal numbers of the people who are in a gang it's a problem that it's it's not sufficiently the way they've expressed it is not it do, doesn't indicate that it's going to be sufficiently um, sort of secure in terms of in, in terms of the the law and you know and it's going to give people the right to recourse but 
let's remember that all these proposals have to go through a lawmaking process. Um, so they have to go, for example, to the Council on Laws, Lagrodet, where senior lawyers, judges will say that you know this piece of the law is not compatible with uh, rule of law principles, for example. But this is only an advisory committee. So it's and, and the government, the, the previous government, the Social Democrat government, has ignored this committee on many occasions. And so it does raise questions um, when, you, when you get this kind of proposal that really will need to be robust if it's going to be fair and just. Also raises this question of, of whether it's you know appropriate for even previous governments to ignore the very learned advice of, um, of of legal experts. And they might have, the Social Democrats there might have created an unpleasant or, or, or difficult precedent. He mentioned that there were some positives in the agreement, like they were taking steps to strengthen the independence of the judiciary. But he wasn't sure if that was going to be enough. And he did mention that some of the provisions in the agreement are similar to the sort of early steps taken by authoritarians like Viktor Orban in Hungary and the um, the government in Poland, for example, how much of a risk is it that Sweden could be going down? I mean, in the Regierings for Klaring, in the in Ulf Christensen's government's declaration, he explicitly mentions Denmark, and we've talked about Denmark a lot. Is Sweden going down the Denmark route, or is it going down the Hungary-Poland route? I think it's pretty clear it's going down the Denmark route. That's the inspiration. I don't think they're inspired by Hungary or Poland. Sweden has fairly robust institutions and a fairly robust judicial culture I, uh, and respect for the rule of law. I, I don't think that it would be possible to go down that route. Although, you know, we have spoken before about some of the issues with these Swedish institutions, that it is possible for it is possible to bypass them. It is possible to change the constitution relatively easily. But nonetheless, I think, you know, that's certainly not what this government is intending to do. I think it's intending to take Sweden down the Denmark route. The Sweden Democrats, to an extent, you know, you, you do have members of the Sweden Democrats who are more inspired by Hungary. What we're going to find out with this government is how significant it is that the Sweden Democrats are not in it. We don't really know yet exactly how they're going to make their presence felt. I think if you look at the background of most of the members of this current government, you've got people who, you've got a lot of lawyers there, you've got a lot of people who are conservative in the normal meaning of the term, which means, you know, they, they generally are people who value institutions and value the legal framework and value the rule of law. But they are obviously dependent for their existence on the Sweden Democrats, who come from a very different tradition, shall we say. And that's all we have time for today. Thank you for listening. You can find links in the show notes to all of the articles we've spoken about today. Thank you to our regular panellists, Becky Waterton, Richard Orange and James Savage. And to our interviewees, Tova Hovemur and John Stauffer. And to our sound engineer, Liz Edwards. I'm Paul Mahoney and we'll be back again with another episode of Sweden in Focus next Saturday. Until then, take care. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. That's all for this week's free edition of Sweden in Focus. If you'd like to hear a full-length version of the podcast each week, as well as an additional midweek episode with more interviews and analysis, please upgrade to Membership Plus. Make sure to check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade. Sweden in Focus is a podcast by The Local Europe. Our sound engineer is Rhys Edwards. The publisher is James Savage.